Hi everyone, my name is Kaif and welcome to another episode of Everything Cyber. In this episode, we're joined by Kane Narraway, a senior security manager at Shopify, to discuss how can we build a zero trust network infrastructure. Now, zero trust is definitely one of the most mentioned and talked about topics in cybersecurity and often rightfully so because of all the value it can bring. But what if someone asks you, how would you build a zero trust network and infrastructure in your company? Where would you even begin or what process would you even follow? Thankfully, Kane has some amazing experience of building and working with zero trust networks previously at Atlassian and currently with Shopify. And he's gonna share many of his insights with us today. We touched on some really interesting topics like how has Zero Trust Network evolved over the time to things like, well, when you're going to pick a vendor for your Zero Trust Network, what kind of decisions you should be considering? We also touched on things like what are the common pitfalls of rolling out and building your zero trust network infrastructure and the potential complications and the process you might follow when you are integrating it with your wider infrastructure. In short, this was a very practical conversation because how frequently you might come across zero trust networks these days. So this topic is a must and very relevant for all cybersecurity professionals. Without any further ado, let's get started. Hey everyone. Hey. Hey. Welcome, Kane. Welcome to our show. Uh, we're really, really happy to have you join us. Uh, super excited. Um, for folks who didn't know, Kane, Kane and I, we had the chance to work before and, and Sebide as well. We all had the chance to work together. It was definitely some really fun times and learned lots from him. Um, he's definitely still called the UB King uh, within Atlassian. Like any, anytime someone mispresses YubiKey and the YubiKey message pops up in Slack or Zoom, there's Kane's emoji that still pops up. So YubiKey in there as well. I'm not sure that's a legacy I enjoy, but uh, it's, <laughs> it's still a fun one, I think. <laughs> uh, I think with that, Kane, um, let's dive into it. Um, I'm sure the audience would definitely love to know more about you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my background has jumped all over the place when it comes to security, to be honest. So uh, I started my career in digital forensics, um, working for police forces, intelligence agencies, that kind of thing back in the UK. And like you may imagine, there's a lot of interesting things that happen as a part of that, but also there's a lot of red tape, a lot of uh, sort of slow processes and stuff. <laughs> and so eventually I got to the point where I kind of had enough of the government life and wanted to try um, something a bit faster, something a bit more startup y. Mm. And so I ended up joining Atlassian back when they were, I think, like 20 security engineers. So it was quite small. And I joined as the first uh, enterprise security person, which I didn't really know a lot about then. So it was kind of jumping into the deep end, to say the least. But um, since then, I went on to build and lead the enterprise security team at Atlassian. And a little while ago, I moved out to Canada and I'm leading the Zero Trust engineering team at Shopify. So I've been doing Zero Trust related stuff since its inception, basically. So I think that's about eight years now. And before that, yeah, it was a lot of digital forensics, incident response, a little bit of red teaming. Um, so it has kind of been all over the place, but it's been good to kind of 
get a little bit of uh, each area, you know, like kind of find out what mm -hmm. you enjoy and that kind of thing. Nice. Um, thanks for the introduction, Kate. One of the things we like asking our guests is, um, what does your what does your partner think you do, and um, also um, how has your upbringing and childhood helped shape the way you approach security? Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Um, I think my partner knows what I do because she is also in IT, and so um, I think she has at least a, a vague understanding, <laughs> hopefully. Um, but uh, when it comes to my family, I'm, honestly, I have no idea. Like they probably have no clue. Like I remember, like when I used to work in digital forensics. They were like, so it's like CSI stuff, right? And I'm like, yeah, but like, if it's kind of a lot more boring than that, realistically. <laughs> like, it, don't don't get me wrong, it, it's good, but you know, like, I don't get two keyboards like they do on CSI to do hacking, so uh, it's kind of a downside there. And um, you yeah. said kind of like childhood upbringing as well. Um, I I do have an interesting story. So um, like, I got into sort of computing and computer science through uh, my granddad. Like he was a like a Ooh. gas engineer and he kind of wanted to, uh, you know, have computers to do like his accounting and stuff. And then he got into video games and all of that. But like one of my sort of earliest memories that I remember really enjoying was like he had built up several computers over the years and every time there was spare parts, he would kind of like put them to one side to the point where like he had enough to like build a PC for myself, right? And it was all in separate parts. And he kind of like gave me a, I don't know, like a computers for dummies book or something like that, whatever they had back in like the 1990s <laughs> and kind of said like, okay, here's a computer, but you've got to build it yourself. And so I was like, okay, crap. And so I remember like reading through it, like working with him on it. And so, you know, like I had a very early introduction to, to IT doing that stuff. And kind of, I've always loved IT related stuff. So I don't think it's a surprise that kind of like I fell into that sort of hacker mindset of security along the way. Thanks for that amazing story. That was really interesting. Um, what differences have you found working in all these different countries? Yeah, it, it's interesting. Like, like I've worked in the UK, Australia, New Zealand and Canada. Um, I've also done a few little stints of remote work in places like Japan, Taiwan, uh, Germany and stuff as well. And I definitely think like in terms of, you know, the UK, New Zealand, Canada, they're all relatively similar, you know, like you can, you can move from one to the other pretty easily, but I do think the security community in each and this sort of hiring practices maybe are a little bit different. Like you all may have also experienced this, but I find it's very hard to find good candidates in Australia and New Zealand. Like you will put out a job or a senior role and you will not get too many applicants. And then out of the applicants you get, uh, it might be a little bit of a struggle to find one who sort of matches the skill sets. Uh, in Canada, and I think the UK maybe to a lesser extent, is kind of the opposite. You, There, there, there are just so many good candidates um, for roles, and I, I think not enough roles in comparison. But um, yeah, I do, I do find it kind of an interesting piece. And I think there's sort of small differences. Like I think, you know, Australian culture is, is pretty interesting. Like it's a little bit more laid back. And so I find it funny how that sort of goes with security because we're generally, I don't know, highly strung people, let's say, you know, in the case of incidents and things like that. And so, you know, you can't really be like, uh, you know, she'll be right when there's a, like a security incident. But um, I do find it sort of interesting how that's kind of changed across all of them. I think, I think the Canada is definitely 
a little bit more like the US, um, you know, a little bit more um, sort of, you know, like work culture and stuff like that. People are very into what they do here. They take it very seriously in comparison. Yeah, that, that's pretty interesting to see how like culture seeps into work culture too. And those binary differences kind of add up over time. Um, mm. So I think it's a good time to start with the topic itself. So Kate, what are your thoughts on zero trust network architecture? And for people who are listening to it or hearing the word for the first time, what would you say it is? you will hear very different things from very different people. Um, I think one of the problems in the industry has been like, what is zero trust? Because everyone has their own idea. And I find that that does not help at all in our industry, uh, like determine what it is, but um, like maybe as a pure description of it, um, I think like the original Google white paper way back I think had like three principles and I, I kind of stick to those, which is you need strong, unfishable multi-factor authentication. You need to not use network as a, as an identifier. So, you know, no VPNs, that kind of thing. And you need to implement something called device trust. So you need to verify that a corporate device is who they say they are and maybe, you know, do some security checks on that prior to accessing any services. So it, it kind of came about, um, because the old VPN architecture was very, uh, I think, you know, castle and moat is a term that's used a lot. So, you know, you use the VPN to get inside the castle and then you have all the juicy data inside and you have only that one sort of enforcement point. But that sort of, that model broke um, when we went into a SaaS world and it was much more difficult to secure all of these SaaS services um, because then you need to do IP allow listing and all of these other things, it's all quite difficult. So I think that's really where it's come from. But I do think the answer would depend on who you ask. Um, like there are network vendors today with zero trust solutions that do have VPNs in them. And so like, it, is that zero trust? And I guess my answer would probably be no, not strictly, but um, you know, I, I think there are definitely definitely differences of opinion. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely seems like a very broad ecosystem where everyone's trying to make zero trust fit the agenda of the product or the service they're trying to sell. They're giving it a definition of zero trust, um, what values is bringing and all that. And here's our product and service that's going to magically help you solve that. And here you go. When I first came across it and I was trying to read about it, I read in different various places. They were generally the same, but at the same time, not. And I was very confused that, okay, what's going on? Maybe let's take a step back from that and understand, regardless of what the core principles of zero trust is, um, a general discussion on why, why zero trust gets so much attention? Why is it so relevant in cybersecurity and what value it is bringing? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think... I kind of touched on the why, but the why was systems were getting breached primarily due to credential theft and that kind of stuff. So that was the whole identity piece. Like we needed the strong multi-factor in order to fix that. Devices had a problem where we would use our tools to secure them and they would have this secure baseline. But then over time they would drift, right? Like um, you put it in the hands of users and things change drastically, very quickly. Uh, you know, settings get turned off, they get disabled. And what that means is that you end up having this security drift as well, right? And so 
you need something to constantly check. And I think that's where in the early days, you may have started doing like checks on the VPN, like every time someone connects, you might've checked their operating system version, something like that. Now, I think the way that happens for most people is you have an identity provider that is the center of your zero trust setup. You have some uh, mobile device management tools and you deploy certificates from those to your workstations, which says, yeah, this is a corporate device. This is good. Yeah. And then when that corporate device connects to your IDP, you check things like the operating system version and the software, and you make sure that everything's good. And that way, rather than just checking, you know, when you connect to a VPN, you check like every time you access an application. And so you basically remove any chance of this drift ever happening. And so that, like I said, combined with the, the unfishable multi-factor, which today is web or then things like pass keys, UB keys, you have a very strong system that is very resilient to things like, like I said, credential theft, almost impossible. Mm -hmm. Lots of external attacks are just wiped out. And then for the attacks that you have left, so maybe like malware on your machine, things like that, you can deal yep. with, um, you know, a strong device. Maybe you put application allow listing in, which isn't strictly yeah. zero trust, but something you, you may also consider when you're building your architecture. Like that uh, tiered service where only devices that have a high trust can access the very sensitive applications and high tiered data. So we have all we have seen some of those concepts float around recently as well. I, I think it's really interesting because every company builds their own and they build it dependent on their own personal needs. Like some systems, like I believe the one at Atlassian, uh, uses like a three-tier system. So you've got your crown jewels at the top, you've got everything else in the middle, and then you've got the open stuff that you don't really care about. Things like Zoom that need to be public. You don't really need to do a lot of checks on stuff like that. Crown jewels might be stuff like AWS, GCP, that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, some places may just have a two-tier system. They may just have, you know, everything is at this level and we do checks on all of this stuff and everything we consider crown jewels and then anything outside of that can be accessed from any device and i think really what you're talking about is a set of rules that you can put in your company and you can say like you know corporate desktops can access this byod can access this any other device can access this and the idea is that you're putting in a bunch of rules to sort of reduce the risk of those really sensitive services and then, you know, less so for things under that. Thank you for that, Kane. Um, just remembering, I used to confuse, uh, sorry, zero trust with zero touch, and I thought they were synonymous, but it turns out zero touch is something else by, I believe, Cisco when you're setting up wireless devices. Um, something I wanted to talk to you about was in terms of the architecture, when I think of like the previous cast on the mod, you, we have a sort of baseline of um, you have outside devices, both through a VPN and there's a firewall and connect to that. Are there any like reference zero trust architecture and has that changed over the years? Like what would zero trust look? I know you've touched on it, but like, would I be able to look yeah. at the diagram and tell that, okay, this is a zero trust network and this is not. I think that's, that's pretty interesting. Like it has changed a lot over the years. Like, um, you know, if you go back to like 2014, I think Google were like the only people doing this. Um, and they were really, I think the pioneers. And then 
sort of later, I think places like PagerDuty, Netflix, then Atlassian started coming out with this stuff and then Salesforce and now to the point today where um, like there are small companies that are doing this. And I think that's like really impressive and it's shown the sort of improvement over time that's really happened in this industry. Um, like if you were doing this back in 2014, you would need to to build everything from scratch. Like you might have um, mobile device management software, but this sort of like access proxy element that does the checks, that was that was not native. That was not something you could do in Okta or in your identity provider um, off the yeah. shelf. So you, you would need to build it yourself. Um, and I think that's really improved a lot over the years. And even then, even if you were building it yourself, you would have to work around the tools that you had because they wouldn't always connect in with other tools. They wouldn't have the information you needed via the APIs. Like it was really a struggle to build this stuff. And then you like, like you, you would not be able to do this without a development team. Like I'll say that because you needed to make sure the UI was good and you, you needed these access proxies that are all over your company. And just doing that at any kind of scale is, is too difficult, was too difficult for most people. Yeah. Um, the, the thing I'd add there is, is that even now with the shift in the general organization culture, working culture, where remote, remote working is more the norm rather than having an exception for this one employee to do remote working. So this brings things like bring your own device into the network. And also if someone is working from a, a network that is untrusted, how do you allow, how do you have mechanisms for them to still access the corporate network? So definitely, yeah. And also with the addition of more identity providers like Okta, um, yeah, that has really led to this like zero trust and that modification. So. Yeah, thank you. I um, sort of semi-related. I saw some great stats recently. I can't remember who it was from. It might have been from someone like Forrester or something like that. But they they did a a breakdown of like where people are in their zero trust journey. And I think it was something like fifteen percent of companies had like what they could probably call a zero trust setup today. But there were a lot more that were sort of halfway through the journey or a quarter of the way through the journey. And so. While it's still not widespread, I think it's it's got to the point where the barrier to entry is much lower than it has been previously. Yeah, I think you touched on how the whole zero trust ecosystem and landscape has changed quite a bit over the years. Based on that fact, if we if you were to let's say join a new company where you had to build it again today, um, how would you do it? I don't think I would build a lot. I think I would be really critical mm -hmm. over what I decide to build. There are lots of options available to you today. And like you mentioned earlier, like every single different vendor has a zero trust solution. The MDM vendors have a zero trust solution. The IDPs like Okta and Microsoft have a solution. Google Cloud and Amazon, like they have cloud-based solutions. And so one of the things is how do you decide which one to go with? Like it, it's almost changed from not having any options to having just too many. One of the things I would encourage people to do is look at vendor consolidation and look at what makes sense in your network. So I'll I'll pick on a couple of vendors here, but pretty much all of them, like I'll try and give two or three examples for. Say you have a Zscaler or Palo Alto VPN and you have a very traditional office infrastructure today. It might make sense for you to use 
something like one of those vendors, because what that's going to help you do is that's going to help you actually transition into zero trust because it's not something you can just switch and like it's done, like it's going to take you some time. And so something like that may help in a case where you know you're going to be doing a long and slow migration, like you have lots of on-prem stuff, you're already using those vendors, that makes sense. Some of my personal favorite solutions are um, the ones from the cloud providers. So Azure and uh, Google Cloud both have really good sort of native solutions, but they primarily work inside their own cloud environments. So if you are a Google Cloud customer and you do everything in Google Cloud, something like Google IAP and Beyond Corp Enterprise are like great for you because it natively ties into all of your stuff. You don't need to worry about access proxies. You don't need to worry about any of this stuff. You can literally just put it in your service descriptor and just turn it on and it's there, which is like super neat for you, right? As a Google Cloud customer. One thing that is probably relevant to most people though is is your IDP. So something like Okta, I think is super common for most. Um, and they have Okta Device Trust, which, you know, it connects in with all of the common mobile device management providers, Jamf, Intune, that kind of stuff. And so I think that's a really neat way to do it when you are like maybe not a dev company. So like maybe you don't have Google Cloud, maybe you're just like a consulting firm or something. You're using Okta today. Great. Like these are some really good examples of where you might choose one over the other. There are maybe what I would call some like pure zero trust solutions as well. So ones that don't tie into anything else, but do a good job of just natively trying to do everything. I think maybe Cloudflare is also a great example of that, where they have a lot of integrations with other stuff and they have a lot of sort of capabilities built into the Cloudflare platform where, you know, you can do a lot of this stuff yourself. And so that's what I would do. I would look at what do you have in your network today? What are you mm -hmm. trying to achieve? Because like I said, zero trust is not one thing, but it's like a yeah. series of things that you might want to do. Um, and so kind of like the first point I touched on, maybe you still have some on-prem stuff. Maybe you still need VPNs for a few things for your offices. <laughs> that's fine, right? And like, that's where those make sense. And I think also looking at maybe like what your target state is. So thinking about like yeah. in three years, where do I want to be? If the answer is like, I don't want any network gear, I don't have any offices, well then maybe you would consider just getting rid of those entirely, right? And moving to something purely cloud. In terms of that, yeah, I truly find that Zero Trust as a space, you have so many different components moving. Uh, you have things that integrate with everything else. So you end up in a situation where everything integrates with everything else. Um, so you have IDPs, MDMs, your ZTNAs, uh, etc. So how do you feel that all of these different components in Zero Trust fit with one another and with the broader ecosystem itself uh, in security and other components? Yeah, and that's that's kind of like maybe what I lightly touched on in the second point there, which is like, look at what you have in your environment. Like if you have um, Chromebooks, for example, that's not something every company has. Like Chromebooks are maybe like a little bit unique. And so you need to check does your zero trust solution support Chromebooks? Do you have an MDM for Chromebooks? Because like the first step of doing anything in zero trust is, you know, 
having good identity procedures, having device management. If you don't have these two things, you you, you can't really start like they are the starting point. And like often the way I, I like to think about people when they when they build this stuff is a two phase approach. Phase one should be identify your crown jewels and then limit access to those crown jewels from your corporate devices. Phase one is is like really dependent on like knowing your vendor space. And maybe if you're starting out totally from scratch, you have lay of the land, right? You can you can pick what you want. You do need to make sure that these things work together and they don't always, like they are getting a lot better, but um, there are a lot of MDMs out there, right? There is Intune, there is Jamf, Kanji, like just to manage Max, there are like five different uh, providers that you could pick. And so I think you need to think like, if I was gonna use Okta Device Trust, do I need a connector in any way to connect that to my MDMs? Like what kind of signals can I get? Like, can I deploy certificates to these machines that Okta can then read? And I think that is probably the biggest struggle. I think the second thing that you sort of touched on there, which was like, you know, you said everything integrates with everything else. And I think cloud is a really important area here. Like if you are a development shop, you probably don't just have SaaS apps in an IDP. You probably have your own apps that you need your developers to be able to access. And that often needs a separate solution, right? Like you you probably can't put all your apps in Okta, like that's gonna be like prohibitively painful in order to set up. And so you will need some sort of zero trust, uh, what they're calling secure service edge or SSE now. What was called in the original sort of Google paper, it was just called a reverse proxy because that's all it is, right? It, sits in front of your app, does access for your application, does that sort of auth C and maybe auth N elements of it. You kind of need to write down all of the vendors you have, what you're willing to move and what you're not willing to move, because some are easier than others. Um, mm -hmm. MDMs are notoriously difficult to move because you need to re-enroll every single device in your company, which is uh, an extremely painful thing. Same with IDPs, right? If I move from Ping Federate to Okta, um, I need to then add SAML on probably all of my applications again, which is a big, big shift. So I do think you need to look at what you're willing to move and what you're not. Um, and you may have to make some trade-offs. Like this is this is often the case, right? I think I've built systems in the past, didn't initially support Chromebooks, ones that like didn't support Linux because MDMs on Linux aren't really a thing. It's not something that's easy to do. You, you've really got to look at what, what your core efforts are going to be. This is maybe a tangent, but something I think is useful to bring up Consolidate as much as you can. Like if you have 10 people on Chrome, 10 people on Linux, 10 people on Windows, and then a thousand people on Mac, do you need those other 30 people to be on those mm -hmm. platforms? Can you maybe virtualize those? Can you use a VM or a cloud machine? Um, because that supporting one like platform a, is better. That sounds like a really relevant topic <laughs> that you're speaking <laughs> from experience. <laughs> maybe one of your former companies really faced that. <laughs> yeah, I think... I think consolidation is like a key point because it makes the decisions that you're going to do in terms of vendors that you're selecting and the way you're going to set up your whole solution around zero trust much, much easier because then then integrations can flow much easier to the, through the different parts. Uh, but yeah, it, it does end up being a challenge sometimes because some people are like, oh, I just want to use Linux. So you, you need to end up yeah. coming to a compromise of a solution that ends up being like a, a cloud system that they could use to log in and do the stuff that they need to do. And yeah. It's super yeah. difficult, right? Because your, your employees and your developers especially will not like you for doing this, right? Like it's not mm -hmm. a nice thing to do and it's something I don't even like doing, right? So 
I think you you need to be critical about what you can do. Is having five Chromebooks uh, necessary? And is getting rid of them going to maybe make your setup better? And it's not that you can not support Chromebooks. I'm just using this as an example. I think Linux is a more popular example. But um, I do think it's something where, you know, if you're a small company with two or three IT and security people, um, realistically, you can't support every platform. You can't support every browser. And I do think that you need to make trade-offs in order to, to push this forward, maybe with a larger team. Yep. Uh, like I know the folks at Google do support a lot of operating systems, a lot of browsers for testing and stuff like that. Chrome Enterprise Browser is getting very popular lately, but also in doing that, you push people to it and you stop things like Firefox and Brave and that, mm. that comes with its own trade-offs, right? Especially for people who are building for those platforms. What I would say is try and get an understanding of what people are doing in your company, especially your developers, and don't assume that, you know, just because 90% of developers are on Mac and they're developing, uh, you know, a web app that you don't have someone that builds hardware payment processing on Linux devices somewhere. Because 90% of people are who you're going to build for, and then it, it's going to be the 10% that are going to cause you like all the problems, I'm sure. Um, and uh, to address this, actually, I've, I've been recently seeing more innovative solutions um, because this is obviously a problem space. Apart from that, another big problem space is contractors. Often you have contractors and external parties come in and making sure you have all MDM and everything set up in the way you would like to in their devices is, is a big hassle. Um, I've seen companies just ship devices to them, a separate laptop, but hey, do a lot of people even have budget for that to give separate laps to laptops to all contractors? Um, I've, I've recently seen this idea of a secured browser uh, I think the the company that comes to my, my mind is Island, but there might be other companies I haven't tried out. What if like all of these management uh, mechanisms and things like proxies, VPNs are built in into the browser itself, so the device um, doesn't need to be configured as much? Uh, I haven't explored that, mm. but this reminds me this is an area I'm more keen to look into more. I definitely have some strong opinions in this area. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a fan of specific enterprise browsers like Island, because I think they negate the developer experience. It might be fine in a company that is like consulting where you don't care about that. But if I'm a developer building for Chrome and stuff, then I want to use Chrome, right? Like that, that's going to be the best thing for me. I think you kind of brought up a really great topic, which is kind of touching on logging. Like when it comes to logs back when we had VPNs, you just, you know, if you had a full tunnel VPN, you logged everything through the VPN you were good. These were the logs that you did your detections on, but yeah. you, you don't have that in a zero trust world, right? Like you have IDP logs, you have MDM logs, you have all these different things, but all of them have their trade-offs. And like, how do you investigate compromise on a device in this world? And I think enterprise browsers is one way a lot of people are doing it. They're doing DNS logging through enterprise browsers, enforcing the browser. And I think that's a really neat way of doing it. I've also seen things like Cloudflare Warp, which is like an agent that sits on your machine and all the traffic goes through it. So rather than a site VPN, like, you know, like a user to site VPN, it's more of a, a client VPN, more akin to, you mm. know, Nord and TunnelBear and stuff like that, which uh, logging is something that you will need to think about and you'll need to work with your detections team if you have one, because this could mean rebuilding every single detection you have, right? Which is if you've been building detections for the past 10 years, that's uh, maybe a 
a big trade-off for you that you're going to be making. So, Ken, yes, um, you talked about approaching building a zero trust network architecture and how this all fits within the broader um, ecosystem. Something I wanted to speak to you is that if, if I'm joining an organization and um, having an idea of the lay of the land, how would you how how would I go about picking a vendor and then building that architecture out? I, I think the the first thing you should do is you should write down the things you're trying to achieve because zero trust was those three principles in in effect, and that's just a small narrow part. But there are lots of things that can be included, and I think that you need to think about that. And we've touched on some of them, right? Like we were just talking about logging, like that's that's maybe a principle that you're going to have to think about. Something else, like I said earlier as well, like what devices do you need to support? Can you consolidate down? Uh, can the tools support all this thing? So I think the way I would do it is I would start listing down sort of bullet points of what am I trying to achieve? How am I going to achieve it? And what am I going to achieve it with? And then pick a few vendors in your space, ideally ones that you, you already use in your network, um, if possible. Um, but maybe you want to choose some new ones as well. And then start sort of going down and checkboxing, like, what can they do? Like, can Cloudflare do this? Can GCP do this? And so, like I said, like, if you're a if you're a Google Cloud customer, you're building a Google Cloud, um, for sure, Google Cloud should be one of the things that you evaluate. But I always encourage people to evaluate three to four tools in general, sort of picking from, you know, things that are relevant to you. So maybe specific things that are good in, in your environment, like I said, maybe GCP. But also maybe you want to pick, like, one of the best, or you know, the Gartner, um, you know, top picks and stuff like that, just the baseline against. And so I think for most companies um, today, I would probably look at Okta if you are an Okta customer. Um, that's certainly one of the best, in my opinion, is Device Trust. Uh, I would probably look at the new uh, sort of Azure entry, especially if you're a Microsoft user, like. This isn't really the world I'm in, so I don't feel comfortable sort of speaking about it in a lot of detail, but, you know, more people out there are all Microsoft shops, right? They're like using Azure, they're using Windows platforms. To be honest, for those people, that's going to be something that they should surely evaluate. And then, like I said, anything that is relevant to your environment. So like I would pick maybe one of those two if you're, if you're customers or you're in that realm, but then, you know, maybe the Z scalers, the Palo Altos and stuff, maybe it, if you're already using those as your VPN. I do think it's a lot easier to do this if you're like a, you know, like a green beard type startup where you you don't have anything. Like maybe you're a brand new company with like 10 people and you're doing this for the first time. But realistically, I think most companies are going to be big legacy companies. They're getting hit with ransomware. They're seeing how much it's costing them and then they want to improve it. And so they're, they're thinking about zero trust because of that. Thank you so much for that, Kane. And uh, unfortunately, that's all the time we had for the funding discussions. Zero Trust is surely a rabbit hole. We can deep dive into it for multiple more hours. I'm, even in my head, there's so, as you we were speaking, there's so many topics that were popping out. I'm like, hey, what about this? What about that? I suppose that's for the future. And before we uh, wrap up, uh, Kane, if any of our audience wants to reach out to you and talk more about this, um, what would be the best medium to do so? Um, probably LinkedIn is the best choice. I am one of those people who canceled my Twitter account and I haven't found a place that's like felt good yet. Like I've tried threads, I've tried Mastodon, but I think LinkedIn is probably the best at this point. Although, you know, maybe that'll change in the future. Do you have any upcoming speaking appearances or public appearances you'd want to share about or? 
Not at this point. Um, potentially there's going to be a talk on Mac admins about Zero Trust and Macs specifically. I've also got some CFPs in for a few conferences, but nothing confirmed yet. Thanks again, Kane, for all of your insights. And uh, thanks to our audience as well for listening to us up, up until now. Hope you enjoyed it. And as always, looking forward to seeing you in the next one. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thanks a lot. Bye.